0: Are you awake? This is where your companion told me to stop last night. Actually, most of what you said was incoherent. I did, however, distinctly hear the word... Kimmy! I got one name! Kimmy! Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen.
1: Boys and girls. Boys and girls. And all Riley and Kimmy fans that Dana attend. <laughs> <laughs> we are... Phantasmagoria. Wicked.
0: The Riley and Kimmy Show. The The Riley Riley and Kimmy Show.
1: Show. Toys. Toys. Movies. Movies. Comics. Comics.
0: Comics. And so much more. The The Riley and Kimmy Kimmy Show. The more that you you listen,
1: listen, the more that you know. know. The Riley and Kimmy
0: Show! And we are at episode 1007!
1: Hello everybody! Hello everybody!
0: everybody. Hi! Hi there! I am your host, Patrick Riley, and welcome to this episode of the Riley and Kimmy Show!
1: Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy... Three very sane spectators.
0: And one of the sane spectators right next to me is Kimmy. Hello, Kimmy. Welcome to this episode, number 1007. Hello. It is a Thursday. We are hours away from a big nerd event which is happening in Mount Dora, Florida, and it's called Lake Collective Con. And it gives me great pleasure to have a special guest on this episode of the Riley and Kimmy Show, and that is Roland Mann. He's former Marvel and Malibu Comics Editor, also a comic book writer and a teacher of comic book writing at Full Sail University. Matter of fact, I think he is on break right now, between classes. Right, Roland? Uh,
1: well, define break. Uh, I, I, I don't you... have my class today. If that's oh okay.
0: Or right. I didn't know if you were between <laughs> classes right now. I didn't know if uh, that's what's going on because I know you are well, in the uh, you know the the storeroom. I mean your office.
1: Well, well, technically I'm between classes because. My class was yesterday, and then it, it it will happen again tomorrow.
0: Now, what class are you teaching? <laughs> what was what was yesterday's? What's tomorrow's? Is it the same one? What class?
1: Um, yes, it it will be the same one. Uh, yeah, it, the class was uh writing for comics and animation. Oh, yeah. So, um, now,
0: I I assume, just you know, I haven't taken the course, that there is a different style for these two genres. Uh, there's a there's a different approach
1: um it is and, and and the uh you know the answer my explanation always sounds snarky but i don't mean it that way um the really the big difference is that in animation the pictures move and in comics they don't
0: oh so you're you're yeah. sort of like the old guys that used to describe tv to people who were part of radio well it's radio with pictures
1: <laughs> that's right <laughs> well you know part of the part of the problem is is um you know our predominant, um, the student body, the creative writing student body, is predominantly interested in at full sail. is predominantly interested in film and television. Uh, we got a healthy dose of of, of uh, game writers in there, and then you know we have a smattering of comic writers. And you know, of course, those are the ones that that I really live for in my class. Not that I don't love the others, but but I, I live for the comic book writers. So most of them come in. Into my class, and not real interested in comics, but their their whole idea of uh, writing for entertainment like this is that they write and the pictures move. So they have a real problem when it comes to okay, panel one, this is what happens, and so their 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 descriptions often sound something like you know, a character enters the room, he picks up the phone, he drops the keys, and sits on the couch, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't do all this in one panel. Mm. The pictures don't move, and and so this is why I, say, you know, like I say, my answer sounds snarky, but when you kind of step back and think about it, you know this, right? As a right. comic book reader, you know the pictures don't move. But a lot of these writers come in here having worked with a, a lot of script formats in which the pictures do move. So it's a it's a tough shift for some of them.
0: So when they write animated, when they're writing for the cartoon or the piece Mm -hmm. of animation, are they writing like a Hollywood script? And when they write the comic book one, do you have them write maybe like a short story and then break it down into that type of script? I mean, how do you how do you do this?
1: Yeah, but well, both comics and animation they start with uh, essentially they start with a pitch. Uh, i would just go all the way back to the beginning. They start sure. with the pitch. Um, you know, once an editor says yes, I like this, then they will they'll, they'll do a summary uh, or. Yeah, they'll do a summary in which they say, Well, this is kind of the story. And this gives the uh, what this does is this gives the editor the opportunity to say, Okay, make sure you do this and you know, don't do this and, and just make sure you have these things included. From the summary, then they'll go to do an outline, and the outline is a very detailed, not quite a script. Thing, right? It it breaks it down. In, in comics, it's a, usually a page by page plot or a scene by scene plot. Even uh, in, in animation, it's a it's a scene by scene plot. You know, they, it almost looks like a script, but it doesn't have the dialogue in it. Now, the big difference between an animation script and uh, a film script is that um, if anybody's out there there listening who's who's written some film or television stuff, is that they're told over and over and over again, don't direct, don't direct, don't direct. Don't tell the director what to do. right? Mm. Well, the big difference in animation is they need to do that because it's going to an artist. Um, so a film script is going to go into the hands of the director, and then the director is going to be the one that takes that script and interprets it, if you will. Mm. Um, and in animation, it's going to go to a, an artist… And the artist has to know what this stuff looks like. So they've got to include – an animation script includes things that uh, make film, um, film writers cringe because they're like, yee, don't include that in the film script. But you do in the, in the animation script, and you just – you have to be detailed with the visuals. What the- and of course com- comics are the same way. just uh, you, Instead of uh, moving the, the script that looks like a Hollywood script, we have a, you know, a panel one, page one, panel one, panel two, panel three.
0: Out of curiosity, what does the director of an animated piece do? I mean, compared to – I mean, we know with live action, you know, he is right. – it's his vision in ways. He gets the script, but it becomes his or her vision, and then they cue and direct and have people deliver lines a certain way or something. Right. What's that director do in the animated world?
1: Well, very similar. Uh, the director is kind of like the um, the manager in charge, Right. Uh, the director gets the script and then oversees the the uh, audio, um, you know, making sure that the voice talent um, comes in and, and delivers the lines. And in animation, they'll often deliver things, you know, a dozen different ways, um, because uh, you know all they're doing is they're hitting the record button. I say all they're doing, like like I'm, I'm saying that's not important. It is, but they're just hitting the re- record button. And then a lot of times they'll just take, you know, one line and deliver it a dozen different ways. Um, the director will then go in and kind of, you know, with his team say, okay. So a lot of it, of course, does depend on how big the team is, right? Mm. Um, and then, you know, say, all right, we'll use this line and this line. And then um, the animation is um, – while they've got a rough storyboard already, the animation then is this kind of tailored to the audio. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, that the, auto, the audio comes first. They're like, oh, we would draw it, and then we'll just do the voices over the top. Well, no, it doesn't usually work that way. It's usually the audio comes first, and then the um, illustrators then will illustrate it. Based on what the audio sounds like, because a lot of times, you know, the voice inflections and that kind of thing will give the artist the ideas, additional ideas of, oh, we could have them react this way, you know, or they sound this way. So we'll put this expression on their face. And the director's the one that just kind of oversees all of that and makes sure that it all happens and comes together.
0: Now, you know, there's a way to simplify this. We just bring back Clutch Cargo and Space Angel. Do you remember Do you remember Clutch Cargo? They would what they would do is they'd have these still pictures like out of a comic book frame and very limited animation and they would superimpose human lips saying the lines.
1: Oh yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes! some of the worst uh, worst things you could see on tv way back when although there are some people who love it i just recently was re i was tortured with it let's just put it that way a friend from chicago brought <laughs> brought clutch cargo and space angel and he goes do you know? i said yeah i you don't have to put that in the dvd player and he did and i'm like Oh, no. I, I was like, I need to have this just for somebody who's really into animation sometime and go, <laughs> I go, this is what we need. We need to bring this back. Uh, they would probably be very upset with me, but it, it's a, I th- oh. I'm sure it's available on YouTube. If somebody's listening to this and they want to see some really uh, – n- this was bad even in its date. I mean, its time period because this is out when you know Looney Tunes was in full – Warner Brothers in full production – uh, this mm-hmm. makes uh, the filmation stuff that Roland and I grew up with. It makes uh, the, that look like, you know, Disney work. Uh, the, it's <laughs> it, it's it's rough. It's real rough.
1: No, oh, that's funny. Now, yeah, it, it's.
0: Go ahead. I, I was going. Well, I was going to ask you about writing, uh, focusing on the writing part. Do you mm-hmm. ever get a student who is working on a project like, you know, the the comic book piece, and you look at the the writing and you go, This is a book. This is not a comic book. This is a, a a novel or a short story. Yes.
1: Yes, absolutely it happens. Um, usually what happens, you know, and of course the the real answer is this and you know this is that you can write anything in any way that you want. Okay? However, what we have to do as as, you know, entertainers is sit back and say, "Okay, does this really work as a comic? Does this really work as you know, an animated piece, and you know the the truth is that if you've got a real brainy story in which there's not a lot happening and there's a lot of talking heads, it probably doesn't belong in a comic book, um, because then what you've got is a comic book full of talking heads, you know. And it's not that you couldn't read it; of course, you could, but. How interesting is it really to, to to look at two two talking heads, you know, for for you know twenty two pages? Ooh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, of course, you know. In the same way, how is it how interesting is it really to, to look at a picture book with no no words at all?
0: <laughs> do Do you think? I mean, and I I don't mean to be bashing modern. When I say well, I can't use modern era because that that sounds like I'm talking about comic books of a certain you know period of time, which is like hmm? I can't remember. 2000 on or 1990 something on let's say in the last five years do you think they're shifting right. to less dialogue less uh words in the book and they're I, becoming more of a picture book
1: i do i do and, and i have a theory as to why i haven't researched it uh in great depth but i do have a theory as to why um comics have seen an influx of uh television writers um, and even you know television inspired writers, and you, you know, it wouldn't take you much to to go look at them and find out who they are, right? Right. And so I think what happens is uh, these these television writers, they don't come to comics with the idea that comics are unique. And they, you know, they are they are a unique form of storytelling. They come and like, oh, well, this, that episode that I couldn't sell for this series, I'll just write it as a comic. Well, the problem is, you know, it goes back to the idea of of the moving pictures. Well, I can't tell you how many modern comics, you know, I look at and I'm like, okay, there's six panels of this dude turning his head, you know. <laughs> Do we really need to see six panels of this person turning his head with no dialogue at all? Well, the answer is no, we don't. But these 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 television writers are trying to transpose, you know, television moving picture thought into comic books, and I think that's where we really get the breakdown. I mean, I can tell you, you know, there was, there was, you know, we've talked this before, and I don't mind, you know, certainly going on record. I really don't buy new Marvel and DC comics today. Now, I, I, it's not that I don't buy Marvel and DC, but when I go to buy Marvel and DC, I, I tend to buy the classics and stuff. Oh, I never, you know, I was never able to get this, and here it is in a, in a trade or collection. I'm going to buy it. Um, but there was a few years ago. One of my favorite artists uh, is is um, Walter Simonson. Love his art. Just always been a big fan. Um, not only that, he's a super nice guy, but he's just you know he's just he's just a fantastic artist. A few years ago, um, he was on a run of the Avengers. When I found that out, I'm like, okay, this might be a reason. For me to go buy the Avengers again, I haven't done so in 15 years, right? And I'm going to go buy the Avengers again because Walter Simonson's on it. And I was, you know, I was actually a little bit excited for the, you know, the first time in in, in years about, you know, a, a corporate comic. And so I go to the, you know, my local comic shop, you know, with with some friends, bebop over to the new comics where the Avengers, you know, were and pick up the comic. Oh, look, here it is. And I start flipping and I'm like, No words, no words, no words, no words, no words. Oh, there's a couple of words, there's a couple of words, no words, no words. Oh, there's a lot of words on this page, a lot of words on this page. Oh, we're done. What? Wow. What? And I and it was like I forget the price. It was like five bucks or six bucks. I'm like, you know what? I really like Walter Simonson's work, but I'm not, you know, gonna pay six bucks for uh, a picture book. And so I put it back. I was very, very Incredibly disheartened um, because there was just nothing there to read. I mean, literally, I probably could have read that book in in you know a minute and a half, two minutes. Oh wow! So had I actually actually I, had I actually taken time to read the words on those last because the last couple of pages had you know some some words on them. Cool.
0: Uh, so I I know this is an impossible, but just for the fun, do you think a Stan Lee and or a Marv Wolfman could exist today? If if they hadn't done their stuff, you know, and they were doing it today, could they exist in that in today's comic
1: environment? Uh oh, my power just flickered. Are you still there?
0: Yes, I'm still here. Okay, good. Yes.
1: Yeah. My my computer just all went 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 dark and then came back. Pay,
0: um, pay the bill. Pay the bill.
1: Yeah, yeah, really, no kidding. Um, so you know, here's the thing. Um, my answer is yes because I believe. You know, Marv still writes. Marv still, still is, still getting work as a writer. Um, so you know that answer. You know that that kind of answers itself. You know, Stanley of course has retired. He's still involved, but he's retired. But I really believe that um, these guys were, were 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 writing to the times. And comic books, if you look at them, have always been mass media, right? I mean, paperbacks. Mass market is what I'm trying to think. Mass market, right? It's always been up until, you know, up until when we were probably in college and there's a shift from, um,
0: from the spinner racks and the newsstands to, to 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 specialty, specialty
1: shops. Right. Exactly. Um, and so now of course with uh, mouse winning the the, the prize and and graphic novels being in libraries uh, all over the place now and academia actually offering you know studies in graphic novels and that that kind of thing they've changed a, a lot um, you know i i personally think that if you kind of look at the history of comics right particularly let's just take superheroes for for instance superheroes come in waves um, if you look, you know they were very popular. Um, when comic books first started, there really weren't that many superheroes. And then World War II, II comes around, boom, superheroes become very popular. World War is over, superheroes go away. Other comics take, you know, uh, gain popularity. Superheroes come back in the 1960s. They have a resurgence, right? And then they kind of their popularity their popularity wanes, and boom, they come back again in the 1990s, um, you know, in a big way. Um, so they're always kind of you know, it's it's kind of cyclical. Um, do I think Stanley could? Um, yeah, because I and, and and I say this because, yeah, I think Stanley's probably a smart enough writer that he could understand that there are some things that don't work. And when I mean that, I don't mean the captions. I love the captions. I love the I still love thought thought uh, balloons. and and part of the reason I like thought balloons is because, for anyone who, who studied any kind of writing out there, one of the things that they do in novels, if you if you put the thoughts of multiple characters in your work, it's called head-hopping, and this is bad because it often confuses the reader because you go from one character's perspective or point of view to another character's point of view, and that can kind of confuse the, the reader. So you don't want to head-hop in a novel like that, right? Now, you can certainly do, okay, this chapter from this character's perspective and this chapter from this character's perspective, but within… Like a, a chapter itself, you don't want to do that because it's confusing. Well, in comic books, you can do it, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, we can have one panel that has three thought balloons from three different characters, and it works because it's comics, right? It's not something that that you can look at and go, "Oh, this doesn't make any sense." Well, no, the 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 thought balloons have little bubbles that go right to the head, so you know exactly who's thinking what. It's not confusing, um, and that's a that's when I talk about the unique. You know the uniqueness of comics. That's one of the things that I'm talking about. Is that this is you can't do that in film, you can't do that in 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 television, right? You you can't do that kind of thing in these other kind of writings. Comics is unique in, in that way. And I think what's happening is is these writers are coming over from these other these other industries and they're bringing that sensibility with them. Right they're like oh we 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 don't see. you can't see or hear a character think so we're going to get rid of it. Well no you can in television Well, you could right I've seen it done kind of in clever ways before sure. but in general you don't but you can in comics and and you should because that's that's the way comic book storytelling is unique. Um so I never, I realized I talked a a, a a long way around to answer your question, but yeah, I, I think so. I, I think if you read Stanley stuff today, in my opinion, his biggest issue is not that he overwrites. His biggest issue is that he is grounded in the '60s. Mm. You know, uh, his his everything that you read is dated, and when and so when I say dated, I don't mean the the kind of how he writes but i mean like the 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 vocabulary that he uses right right very very 60s does that make sense at all
0: yeah it does okay now some of the things you're talking about with thought balloons and you know Mm -hmm. that can that old school technique be utilized in the indies in the independent more can it be embraced and embellished you know more writing more more storytelling can an indie do what the big guys are not doing now
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's the beauty of indies is that that um, I was just showing someone, showing my class yesterday. Um, I was looking at Kickstarter. You know, we talk about sales uh, of comics a little bit uh, in the class. Um, and
0: what, what's a what's a should, big big sale right now? What's considered good for a comic book issue? Uh, what's considered good numbers?
1: Well. Sure. Um, well, up until DC's rebirth – I'm going to actually – Comicron. I don't know if you're familiar with that site, and if not, you and your audience should be. Um, the site is done by – got to make sure I get the exact – it's a weird kind of name, and so i got to make sure I get the exact spelling of it. Okay, It's called Comicron.com, and that's C-O-M-I-C-H-R-O-N.com, and the um, – the site is—I shouldn't say the site. I don't know if the site's done by him, uh, but there's. If you go there, you'll find uh, sales figures um, going back to. Let me see fucking. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to n- navigate while we're here. Going back to obviously the first ones go back to '95, but I think he's even got sales. Yeah, he's got sales figures that date back to 1991. Um, a lot of these are, are broken down by the month. So you can actually see um, what the sales are now. Let's see. We're in. We don't have. So I mean, the, late, the latest sales figures he has up here are for August of 2016, right? Okay. So a few months ago, let me just let me just back up just before I, I, I give you some of these numbers. So a few months ago, before rebirth. Right, we probably had uh, five comics that sold more than a hundred thousand copies. And when I say sold more than a hundred thousand wow. copies, I'm talking about like a hundred and two, hundred and ten, hundred and twenty, that kind whoa. of thing. Right? Yes. That's you're saying whoa because that's really low, right? Yeah, because
0: uh, we yes. go, we go back to the golden age. We had million issues plus.
1: Yes. Right. In the eighties, uh, in the eighties, prior. I mean, we look at the seventies and eighties as kind of a, a you know. Um, kind of our golden age, I guess you can say. Um, it wasn't unusual to find the, the average sales of comics anywhere between about 250 to 350 thousand. Right, that was kind of your, uh, you know, uh, y- your healthy range. Um, the better selling titles to come along, of course, you know, Batman always sells uh, generally pretty well, depending on who's doing it. But for instance, the X Men in the '80s were selling something like 450,000 copies, right? So that was that was a that was one of the better selling books. But anyway, 250 to 350,000 copies, right? Well, in the of course, in the '90s. Early nineties, all the gimmicks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think when they name the age, it really ought to be called. I've seen it called the Image Age, but I almost think it ought to be called the the Gimmick Age. Um, <coughs> excuse me. You know, multiple covers, fancy covers, holograms, all that kind of stuff. And yes, I was part of it. I I get that, but you know, it's what it was. But sales were incredibly high. Um, so, for instance, at Marvel, if your book sold less than seventy thousand copies. Or maybe 60,000, you were actually on the chopping block. It was like, okay, this book is only selling 60,000 copies. We need to consider cancellation. What can we do? To uh, to bring the sales of this book up, or we're going to cancel it. Now, at Malibu, before I you know became a, a Marvel guy, our break-even point was twenty-five thousand. We we're like, okay, we need twenty-five thousand copies of this book to 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 break even. And if we could, say, and, and of course, we had books that sold you know sold thirty and forty and fifty thousand copies, and that was good for us, right? As an independent company, that was good for us. We were happy with those. Now, some of the Ultraverse titles got up into the you know uh, higher hundreds and and uh, two hundred thousand. And of course, those were just phenomenal. Um, so since, the, but then the crash happened in the late '90s, and since then, comics have sold terribly. Mm. Um, there have been there have been months where there have been zero comics that sold uh, over a hundred thousand copies. Okay, so just, just this is just to give you a, a little perspective. Rebirth comes around. And suddenly, I'm looking at the August sales. Harley Quinn number one, three hundred and fifty-nine thousand. Yikes! The top, yes. Uh, just just to give you a, a picture here, um, there are eleven books that sold more than a hundred thousand copies. Ten of those belong to DC.
0: Unreal.
1: How incredible is that? And and in, in, yeah. So, um, and the top, the top Marvel book here is Amazing Spider-Man number 16. It sold 185,000 copies. So Harley Quinn sold 359,000, almost 360,000 copies. All-Star Batman sold 289,000 copies. Suicide Squad 217, then there's a Spider-Man. Suicide Squad Rebirth sold 177, Batman 152, Batman 142 um, and, and then, of course, you get into the uh, into the you know less than ninety thousand. Um, so your first um, the first image book is The Walking Dead. It comes in at uh, number thirteen, sells ninety seven thousand copies. Now that's really good for The Walking Dead because it's not a corporate book, right? It, it, right. Basically, it all goes to Kirkman um, and his and his creative team. Uh, but if you keep scanning down the list. The next non-Marvel DC book is Saga. comes in at number 37, and it sold 50,000 copies. Wow. Uh, yeah, you keep getting to going down the list, going down the list here. We got uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Universe number one by IDW. sold 34,000 copies. So let me see how far down this, this thing goes. Um, so the number 100 book, let's see. The number 100 book sold is Scooby-Doo Apocalypse – Sold 28,000 copies. Um, But if you go down the list here, look, you're looking at books like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. number eight. uh, Sold 15,000 copies. Wow. How are they they still publishing this book? The Legend of Wonder Woman number nine, 14,000 copies. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Let me just – let me keep going here. All right. uh, Civil War number two. Volume one, I don't, this may, um, this this seems weird. 9,000 copies. Oh my goodness. Uh huh. Uh, Teen Titans Go, number 17, at 9,600 copies. Um, these are, these are fantastic. I mean, these are available. John, John Jackson Miller is the guy who does this. John Jackson Miller is a friend of mine. A lot of people will know him. He's the writer for lots of Star Wars, you know, stuff. Um, he worked for uh, Krause for a long time. Um, the, the comic buyers guide uh, and he does this every month he he just he he does this takes these numbers and does does this thing every month and I'm looking I think he does I'm not sure whether he does everything that uh, that's in the diamond catalog or just certain but this one this one actually goes all the way down to um, four hundred thirteen jungle fantasy ivory and I don't even know what this is. Uh, and this says nude cover uh, by Avatar. It was sold 2,867 copies.
0: Wow, nationwide! <laughs> wow,
1: nationwide, yeah. So let me let me actually so so let me actually let let you know where I was going with all this, okay? So so I recently showed my class a Kickstarter, um, uh, and I don't really mean to to plug the the guy's Kickstarter here. Um but I will just because it's you know it's it, it's a sign of changing times for us. Um, let me get it up so I can I can tell you exactly and up to the date. Um, so there is a web comic called Scurry. I'd never heard of it before um, until just yesterday, and it's done by, hold on a second, I'll tell you, done by Max Smith, okay? He has six days to go and he has 1538 backers. Okay. Now, based on the list we just you know covered, he would he still wouldn't make the, the this best sellers list or this this top 100 and I'm sorry, top 413. Um, let me see. Actually there are trades here. Okay, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so I I just didn't go far enough on this comic So John Jackson Miller lists all the individual issues, and then he actually lists the trades sold. Okay, so um, the lowest trade listed here for August is number 507. Let me make sure he starts his numbering at number one. Yep. With, the the top one was uh, Star Wars Darth Vader, which sold seven thousand copies at you know sixteen ninety nine. They say Amazon ranks, so this must this might be. I haven't read enough about these rankings to know if uh, where he's getting these numbers. Uh, but these are estimated sales. Um, so the lowest one here is Dragons Rioting Volume Four, sold two hundred and sixty one copies. Whoa! Scurry graphic novel fifteen thirty eight. Let me let me see where this would fall in. Fifteen thirty eight. Fifteen thirty eight. Fifteen thirty eight. Um, fifteen, it would fall right here. The scurry graphic novel, if this were if this were on this list, would come in at number seventy one. Wow. And he's got and he's got, you know, six days left to go. So you know the the guy can, can probably get another I mean he can easily get another five hundred backers before it's over. So you know, times are changing because there's a lot of people going directly to the creator, right, to get this scurry uh, uh, trade paper. As far I don't know whether he's and you know this creator intends to release it on um through diamond or not or whether diamond would even take it that probably wouldn't now that he's done this kickstarter with 1500 copies right Uh, yeah but my
0: understanding don't they have to have like 4000 units or something available for diamond to even touch them it's it's a sizable number i know that
1: yeah that's probably for um the individual issues right but okay you know if we look at that number as an accurate number 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 the bottom 14 listed for August did not sell 4000 copies. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, and you know they're they're I was going to say they're all uh, uh, real independent comics, but I see a Valiant Comic listed listed on there. Valiant Universe Handbook came in at 3330 and 55 copies. So, um so I say all that to say, I don't even remember what your original question was, but the sales are actually going up, thanks to DC.'s rebirth for the first time in 20 years.
0: Do you think that's because older readers are going back into uh, reading, you know rebirth? Did they bring them back? I mean, what's the deal? Why did this happen? You know,
1: I think there's a little bit of that. And I think here's the thing. Okay, so so you know I got a lot of friends that work at DC, and the last thing I'd ever want to do is make them mad uh, or even hurt feelings. But I I think this is what happened. Okay, this is just my take on it. There's no research. This is not research. This is just purely my take. I think for a long time, you know, DC frequently tries to play catch up with Marvel. Right. It's always just, you know, Marvel's got 40 percent and DC has 38 percent of the market share. And, and so, D, you know, this kind of the way it's it's sort of perpetually that way. And DC's always looking at, at, for ways to do that. And I think what happened is, is, you know, they've rebooted so many times. I think they lost their way. I think they, you know, we, you can hear all the complaints about what they've done to the, the, the Movies and television and things like—actually, oh, their television's doing pretty good, but the movies, you know, we, we've heard no end of complaints. I know you've heard them too. No end of complaints of how terrible these things are, and I really think that um, they really just kind of lost their way. You know, they've got a really good library of characters, and there's no reason that they should be telling crap stories. The other thing is, you know. And I know that that not everyone will will certainly agree with this, but I think Marvel and DC both abandoned their core audience, and I think this is why sales have have really hurt over the last 20 years is is that… You know, they publish a lot of books that I would never let my my kids look at. And well, my kids are a little older now, so this almost doesn't you know stand. But you know, I would never let younger readers look at at a lot of the stuff that that Marvel and DC have done over the last twenty years. This wasn't that way. If you go back, you know, twenty five or thirty years, you could you could let any reader read any Marvel or DC comic. You know they were smartly written, but they were written for all audiences. You could still read content, and this is why I, th- I think we, you know, guys like Marv Wolfman and Stan Lee were actually smarter writers than we have today. Yes, maybe their their styles were a little goofy, but they could write, you know, uh, complicated stories that you and I can read and go, yeah, I see what you're doing there, and and I understand it. But a younger reader can read it and still get an enjoyment out of it. You know, like a lot of, like a lot of the old Bugs Bunny cartoons. I mean. You know, you watch these Bugs Bunny cartoons you're like, "Ah, oh, look, Bugs Bunny's a transvestite," right? <laughs> <laughs> but but if you watch it as a kid, it's just, "Oh, he looks goofy and he's doing goofy things and it's funny." Right? But it's smart writing. It's they're able to layer that. And I don't think the writers have been able to do that for the the, 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 the you know, the past what, 20 years.
0: Is that the editors' fault since you're a former editor is that the publisher's fault are they saying skew it now to a certain target audience whereas before it was you know 15 and under of appeal marvel did for decades or for a decade at least right. under, under stan lee's uh, edict that you wrote to a 15 year old up to a 15 year old mm-hmm. and then assume that a college student's going to come back and rediscover you um right is that gone now is it where okay we're going for a 25 to 34 year old male and yes is are they targeting that way
1: yes it is um yes they've they've abandoned the younger audiences because you know for for years i you know and and you remember this but for years it was always well comics are for kids comics are for kids comics are for kids well we were comic book readers so we knew that wasn't true but the people outside of it didn't realize it wasn't true. So the the natural reaction to some of these people who grew up hearing that is like, well, let me make porno comics and I'll prove to you that it's not for kids. <laughs> right? Mm. I mean, that's kind of the you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's it that's kind of the natural reaction. Well, let me put blood and guts and and and, and boobies and stuff like that in my comics and I'll prove to you these are not for kids. And I think that was the pushback that we got. Um, you know, and it wasn't unusual to see a lot of this kind of thing in independent comics. But then, you know, probably in the '90s.
0: Well, even even Marvel did that themselves under the Curtis. Yes, they did. Under the Curtis line, if you remember, they because they weren't to publish the size of a comic book, they got past the comic code. They were the larger mm-hmm. size magazine, black right, magazine and, format, right? Black and whites; they couldn't be color, so that way they were not affected by the the code. And those were more graphic stories, like Dracula yes. Lives, is an example. Uh, that Curtis did, and they did others too under the Curtis banner. Uh, I, th- right. I don't know if Pub, uh, Punisher was under the Curtis banner or not, but they were, they were more adult themed.
1: Right. Yeah, and I th- and I think what with the you know with the the loss of um, the spinnerax, the the newsstand distribution, it just kind of you know all of this kind of just played hand in hand, and so they just you know they abandoned that the code. Uh, they didn't need the code. And of course, you know, uh, writers and artists were always trying to to push the code. You know, um, they were always, well, can I get away with this? Well, can I get away with this? Right? And even when, you know, when, of course, I, when I was an editor, the code still existed and we followed the code. And so it wasn't unusual that, you know, I would have a, a, an artist ask me, well, can I do this? Well, can I get away with this? You know, and, and we were like, no, you, you know, you can't do that. Well, let me look, check the code. I don't know. I have to go see, you know. Um, I've seen it. Uh, someone not too long ago said uh, the Marvel editors didn't even know what was in the code. Well, that's not true. We 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 had a copy of the code. We knew what was in it. Uh, or you know, at least at least the Malibu branch of us did. So, um. Uh, I can't speak for the, the the Marvel offices, you know, the Marvel headquarters, but yeah, we knew what was in the code um, because we dealt with them, right? We sent the artwork to them, and 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 they had to approve it.
0: Did they did um, they approve the 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 dialogue at all? Did they have to go over through any of the narration? Was that part of the code as well, or was it just the artwork?
1: You know, um, I don't remember ever having a problem with dialogue. I remember having to change some artwork before. Really? Uh, yeah, um, but I don't remember ever having a problem with dialogue. But I don't know if that's because we, you know, we're, we're ahead of the game, or um, because we just never—they didn't check it. I, I'm I'm fairly certain, and don't don't quote me on that. I'm fairly certain they would check the dialogue, because obviously certain language, you know, wouldn't have been allowed. You know, uh, you couldn't drop any f bombs. Uh, In a comic. Of course, now, you know, you go look, you go pick up comics. It's not unusual to find, you know, a handful of F-bombs and in in an image book, you know. And again, I I think this is this is probably why we have such a limited audience, because um, if you don't grow up with the comics you're not You're not going to reach out to a 30-year-old who's never bought a comic book before and say, hey, look, you should go buy comics because they're going to laugh in your face. They're going right. to say, yeah, no thanks. I'll just watch television. And so I think by abandoning a young audience – and this is why I think Stan Lee uh, was brilliant in what he was doing because he was constantly rebuilding the audience. And of course, Shooter followed him up. You know, for for a decade um, after the couple of you know other editors there, Shooter followed him up. And Shooter's uh, own sort of theology was that you know you have to write every comic book as if it's someone's first issue. And I think that's brilliant philosophy. I tell you, the single most common comment I get from my students, and again, who I already said earlier, most of whom are not comic book readers, the single most common comment I get is. I have no idea what's going on in this comic book. Wow! Right? Yes, and and you know, you and I—I I mean, come. This is not from comic book readers, okay? Comic book readers can pick it up and figure it out. Oh, okay, well, Do I just figure out there's you, stuff that I don't know.
0: Is that because uh, they're not contained stories per issue? Is it because they arc them so much now they stretch things out? Is that part of it?
1: Well, um, you know, um, we had we had arcs when we were.
0: But reading not that many what? though they they were more self-contained you know per episode per issue it was uh, you know especially dc material um yeah i i didn't know if well, that I, may, I, made a difference you know where you didn't have to read 12 issues to you know know where that well, story is going
1: I, I think there's a lot a lot of that but 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 in reality what my students read they're graphic novels the, or trade or collections
0: oh, gotcha, gotcha right they
1: actually make them do an analysis um i at this point in time, and I'm, I'm looking to change it. I don't actually sign individual assign individual issues for them to read, for that very reason, because I'm afraid they're going to get part three of a 12 part, you know, epic, and they're certainly not going to understand anything. But if you look back at at the you know the, the 70s and 80s, you could pick up Crisis number eight and get caught up to what was happening sure. by a smart by a smart writer. Right? The smart yeah. writer would, would, would be able to fill you in the if you missed the first seven issues, here's what you missed. Right? We don't do that anymore. The, the there are comics there are comics that are published today. They don't even tell you they don't even establish where the heck you're at. You open it up and it just starts and you're like, Okay, where am I? Right? Mm. There are comics that, that the characters don't call each other by name because, you know, you don't do that in television because that's not cool. You know. Hmm. And so you you read it, you're like you're into the like, who are these people? And you know this is a this is a a, a terrible 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 mistake in comics, and that you know these the, the, so many writers are trying to be cool or more television like or quote unquote more realistic. And well, people don't Patrick, people don't call each other by name, do they?
0: No, Roland, you know, we it, do not.
1: You have, right, <laughs> you know, it's, it, and it, it sounds unnatural. This is their argument, but you know in entertainment you have to do that you want you know go look at some of the best television they call each other by name they but they do it in such a way that that they try to make it not so obvious comic books need to do the same thing but but so many of them don't and i'm, I'm telling you the most common comment i get from from my students who don't read com and you know, I'm trying to convert them. That's part of what I I view my job as a as a teacher is to convert those who don't read comics into into comic book readers. You know, but the most common comment I get is that I, I had I, I was confused. I didn't know who these characters were, and I didn't know where I was. I you know, and that's because they're throwing picture books at them and expecting them to understand it, and it just doesn't work that way. Sorry, you got me ranting.
0: That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you you brought up something that it, uh, put a flag up the pole, and I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned Jim Shooter. Did you? I know. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure your time frame here with Marvel Malibu. Did you work around Shooter, or was he gone by the time you uh, came into Marvel Malibu? He
1: yeah he was he was gone by the time uh, I came into it. I think he was already doing um, he was doing Valiant books at the time. Okay. So did
0: you ever? Was there a legend? I mean, was it a, what, did they have examples, don't do it the shooter way? I mean, was there, you know, don't manage this way, don't do it this way? I mean, because I've heard horror stories from some people I will not identify. Right. I, and, um, and did you ever encounter him in the real world at a convention or something?
1: Yeah, yeah, I encountered him in the real world. Incredibly nice guy. Uh, again, he was with Valiant and... Um, and, you know, my, my experience with him was incredibly nice. He's real tall. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm not a short guy. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's uh, – you know, he was incredibly nice and, and generous with his time with me at a convention. Um, that said, uh, I never heard – not that I can recall anyway. I never heard, you know, um, anything like don't do this the shooter way or blah, blah, blah. Or, but um, – I did hear stories about how uh, tyrannical he was, and in, in that he kind of ran the office. This is this is you know I'm the I'm the editor in chief and we're going to do it my way, or or you know you can hit the road. Um, I you know I heard several of the editors kind of you know talking about that. Well, um, you know he was a tyrant. We had to do things his way. Blah 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 blah. Um, and I don't know specifically what they meant. Um because it, you know, shooter's already he was already gone a couple of years. I don't I don't I have to look exactly. I think he left in what 99? Uh, I think
0: so. I think I, I
1: bet I bet the Google will tell us, won't it? It
0: should. <laughs> it better. Uh,
1: but it, but yeah, see I, I I um
0: shooter. I'm guessing it's like nineteen seventy nine. Well, I love his
1: blog, by the way. I don't know if you've ever read his blog. No, I've
0: never have.
1: Got a fantastic blog where he tells. Now he hasn't. He hasn't written anything in in a year and a half or so, but a lot of um, his writing, I especially like his writing blogs. But he does some behind the scenes, um, you know, behind the scenes things at Marvel, where he actually, you know, he has photocopies of uh, memos and stuff like that. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh pretty good. So Shooter was fired from Marvel in '87. Okay, I was gonna say '89. So yeah, see, I didn't come al- I didn't come along. I, I became an editor at Malibu in '92, and then Marvel didn't buy us until uh, late '94. Okay. So he was already gone, you know, several years by that time. Again, that that said, you know, I did hear some negatives about about him from the the editors, but I don't remember anything specifically, you know, don't do this or don't do that.
0: Now, how did you, uh, we may have done in the past, because you and I have known each other for a while, and we've talked to them, mm-hmm. we've been on the show, but in case I've been there before, forgive me, but how did you end up at Malibu slash Marvel? I mean, what, what's a brief Roland Mann kind of bio here? How did you, <laughs> Sure. I mean, wh- I because mean, obviously you had the gift of writing, and what caused you to go into that world as opposed to, let's say, doing screenplays, doing television uh, screenplays, movies, or that great American novel? What? caused you to go down the path you did
1: well i'm still working on the great american novel
0: (laughs) are you really are you are you being serious is this your civil your civil war novel
1: no 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 i've actually got uh i actually have
0: you're doing a civil you're doing a civil war graphic novel if i remember right you were looking to do that um i thought you told me that
1: no i would love to but no okay
0: put that down on the list that'd be a good one okay
1: yeah uh, I have two finished novels, um, both of which you know are still uh, looking for a home. I have one published in 2010. Apparently, it wasn't the great American novel, um, but uh, I, I have two more finished, uh, and I'm actually about 30,000 words into into another one. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Um,
0: are you writing by hand or on computer?
1: I'm writing by, on a computer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah. So I. You know. So I've always written prose. Uh. It's a different kind of writing than comics. And so I've always written prose. Uh, I will tell you this though. I didn't. I didn't attempt my first novel until, um, the late '90s when the, you know, the comic book industry crashed. And you know, I had made my entire life comics, and, and I you know I'd written short stories before, but it literally came to a point. Okay, well if comics are going to cease to exist, and of course you know there was that. I'd, I never thought that would happen, but there was that kind of scare. Oh no, comics won't exist soon if this keeps happening. And and so one of my thought processes was, all right, if comics cease to exist, well what the heck am I going to do? Right. Mm. And so I'm like, well, you know, I wonder if I can write a novel because I've never written anything longer than a short story, you know, and, and a novel just seemed so daunting. And so I set about to write a novel and I got about 40,000 words into one. And I said, OK, this is a piece of crap, but all right, I can do it. Um, so. That was then that, and I didn't revisit it until a couple of years later, um, because I was still kind of wrapping up the comic book stuff. But I'd kind of proven to myself, yes, I can produce that many words. Now I've just got to figure out how to make them worth reading. Um, so how did I get to, to Malibu and, and yeah, uh, Mar- how, and
0: you know, you obviously weren't you wanted to be in comics, obviously, uh, right. from what you just yes. said. So how how did this happen? I mean, uh, did you respond to an ad in a paper? Did you? Uh, respond to a well. We know you wrote the editor in the the comics in the past when you were in college. We found that issue, one of them at least. Right,
1: right.
0: And, and so, uh, is that was that the start when you saw yourself published in the comic book? Uh, where where did it go? How did you end up there?
1: You know, I, I yeah. You know, from from the time I was about a senior in high school, I knew I wanted to work in comics. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know how to make it happen. I obviously I'm from Mississippi. And I just I didn't know how to make it happen. I did not want to move to New York City, right? I just did not. Um, Southern boy, I wanted to stay in the South, but but I knew that I wanted to write comics. Um, when I entered school. Um, because I didn't know how to make writing happen, I'm a first-generation college student. Um, my uh, my dad, my mom and dad, my um, mom I think dad went to trade school for a year, and mom has a semester or two at, at uh, university uh, before getting married, uh, which you know was kind of the common thing in the the, the 50s and 60s. Um, the only thing I really knew is that my dad said you're going to college, right? Um, that was he was you know he was you know insistent. I'm going to college. My sister and I. You're going to college. Um, so when it came time to go to college, you know, I, I said, "Well, I wanted to be a writer." My dad said, "Why well, are you going to make your money?" I, I couldn't answer the I couldn't answer the question because I didn't know. Um, and I, you know, kept saying, "I want to be a writer." He's like, "Well, how are you going to make your money? How are you going to feed your family? How are you going to pay your bills?" I don't know, Dad. I don't know. And so when I entered college, I actually, when this was the '80s, right, I went into the computer science program because I didn't know how to make money in writing. I'm still not sure I know how to make money in writing. Uh, but I went into computer science because it was new. It was booming. And for two and a half years, I was a computer science major. Uh, Learned all kinds of uh, 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 programming software. Um, And that last stretch, I got into uh, Fortran and realized this is way too much math for me. And so on the sly, I changed my – Degree to creative writing because I wasn't sure how I was going to answer my dad when he asked me that same stupid question again. How are you going to make your money? And so I just changed, and it wasn't until just before graduation that that I told him. And then he asked me that same question, well, how are you going to make your money? And I said, you know what, Dad, I have no idea, but I know this is what I want to do. I want to try it. So he said, okay, and um, that was it. Um, so I started writing, actually, you know. R- 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 so here's the th- here's the difference between me and a lot of my my students, right? A lot of my students come into the, the the program and they're in my class, and I start talking to them about what they're doing, and multiple students have said, "Well, when I graduate, I'm going to start submitting." Well, apparently I didn't know that that was what you're supposed to do because when I was in college, I was submitting stuff right and left, right? I mean, I was submitting stuff. I probably started submitting stuff when I was a senior in, in high school because I, this is what I wanted to do. Well, no one told me I had to wait till after graduation. That's that's tongue firmly planted in cheek. You 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 get, right?
0: Yeah, I get it.
1: Okay. Okay. But I've actually had students come through my class think that they need to wait till after they graduate and get their degree, but I'm like, "No, no, no. You you just submit now." Um so I'd been submitting, you know, like crazy, and gotten, you know, my share of rejection letters from Marvel and DC and, and other uh, publishers as well. But I met a couple of artists in college, and we put our own thing together. And literally within just a few months after graduation, we'd found a home for it. And and so I was able to start. Really quickly after graduation, having comic books published with me as a writer. Now they didn't pay enough for me to, you know, not work, so I was working in the bookstore. Um, you know, worked my way up to assistant manager, um, and so I was an assistant manager at the bookstore while I was, you know, writing comics a- at night. Um, and I did that for about two years. My my goal was always this. My goal was always whenever, you know, because you know I'm just making minimum wage. And that, that was never intended for to be my career. I never really flipped burgers, but that was never – I never intended for the bookstore to be my career, and um, my goal was always when I'm making the same amount of money writing comics as I am at my minimum wage retail job with the retail job, yes, that was going to cut my, my income in half. But I was trying to get to that level, right? I was like, as soon as I can get to that level, I was all – I took – just before Christmas, a comic shop owner um, left his comic shop, opened a toy store in the mall, hired me as his as assistant manager, right? So I worked through the Christmas season, and then in February, the the company shut down. <laughs> oh, boy. So, Yeah. So I was really close already to that level, right? Because I was selling enough comics that I was really close to making the same amount as I was making. I wasn't there, but I was really close. Um, and so I just said, "All right, well, this, you know, I'm really close. So let me just focus solely on on writing comics." And so I was able to do that. Um, and I got, you know, a lot of my work from Malibu, but I got work from Caliber and from and from uh, First Comics, some other other companies as well. And I noticed that uh, over like in '92, I noticed that uh, when I would pitch Malibu, they were they were biting at fewer of my submissions. And so at an Atlanta Dragon Con in 1992. Uh, the editor in chief was there, and we were talking. I, I had a good relationship with those guys, right? Um, and we were talking, and he was like, I said, "I said, you know, hey, I noticed you guys aren't biting on as many of my stories. And, Are they not up to snuff? Are you looking for something different?" And he goes, "Oh, no, not at all. We, 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 you know, we love your work." He said, "We're actually getting ready to build an in-house bullpen, kind of like Marvel." He says, "We want to, you know, we want to bring in editors and, you know, uh, uh, art staff and that kind of thing." And so we're cutting back on our freelance work. So we're just he goes, it's not just you, he goes, it's everybody. I'm like, oh. I said, Well, would you consider hiring me? And and he was like, You would want to move to California? I'm like, Well, no, not really, but you know, if it's if it's that or get no work, uh sure, it's a it's a you know, it's something I would consider. Two weeks later they made me an offer and um, a few weeks after that I moved to California and took the job as editor at, at Malibu. Uh, So that's how I became a Malibu editor. Um, Was it
0: what what you expected? Was it what you expected being an editor?
1: Everything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And more. Um, See, I was already doing freelance editing, but I didn't realize that's what I was doing. Uh, so, one of the things, uh, I, you know, in Mississippi, one of the things I was doing uh, after I had gotten, you know, my first couple of books published, I began to, you know, go do the conventions around and, you know, in New Orleans and in Dallas and in, you know, over in uh, the Atlanta Dragon Show. So, I was doing, trying to do shows that, you know, were in, you know, a 10 hour driving distance from me in Hattiesburg, right? And I was meeting a lot of artists, creative people who were like me. They wanted to do comics, but they didn't really want to move to New York City. And so because I had the contacts, I'm like, well, you know, I really like your, your work, and I really like this this writer over here, so let me put you two guys together, and I'll see if I can get Malibu to bite on it. I was kind of a, 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 a freelance agent and a freelance editor because I was editing the projects, uh, putting them together, and then and – then Pushing them on to publishers, primarily Malibu, but pushing them on to publishers that I knew. So Malibu had, had kind of grown to trust me in that when I would bring them a project, because I brought them several projects that I didn't write, you know, but I just found an artist and a writer and I put them together and, you know, then sold them to place them. I was a pa- what it's called in comics, is called a packager. And so I was a packager. Um, And so they had already kind of built this trust with me. But I will tell you the thing that I liked is that suddenly I had a budget. (laughs) You know, Uh, when I became a a staff editor, I actually had a real budget to work with. And, you know, it it wasn't the Marvel budget, but I could actually call people and say, hey, look, I, you know, I'll offer you $25 a page to do this. And, and so, you know, I could actually pay people and, and, and hire people and offer them money. And, um, that was so so yeah it was it was very cool
0: was it was it hard dealing with friends because you would have to be the editor where you would have to maybe make corrections or changes in their work
1: you know um not really um i'm trying to think uh the only problems that i had were with um really the biggest problems i had were with established professionals (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh really is it because is it because yeah. you were not part of their world in their eyes i mean is it was it a part of that
1: yeah it, it was because um
0: you didn't come up through the ranks is my point like maybe
1: no no i uh, was at that's what i was doing i was coming up through the ranks okay right? I, i'm no, just curious.
0: why no, did why was there a problem
1: because they had been doing this stuff for 20 years they knew uh, what they were doing uh, and they didn't need me to tell them how to do stuff right <laughs> okay. i actually had one writer say kid I can make any book a comic book. I don't need – or I can make any book a hit. I don't need you to tell me how to do comics. Okay. Yeah, and it was actually one of my – I won't mention his name, but it was actually one of my my idols, my childhood idols. Oh, no. uh, Yes, and I'm like, really? Here I'm getting the opportunity to work with you, and this is what you're doing? Okay, great. Uh, I will tell you, though, one of the coolest guys to work with who who did not have any ego wrapped up in his work was Steve Gerber. Really? Uh, uh, yes. Steve Gerber would would call me up and tell me his stories, and I would give him feedback. And he was so cool. Okay, Roland, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Let me incorporate that. Or he would say, Well, what about if we do this instead, right? But he would he was wh- when I would make a comment, Steve was trying to fish for what was at the root of it, right? Obviously, I was making a comment because something bothered me. Right, and so he wouldn't—he wouldn't just say, "Oh, well, I'm Steve Gerber. I know what I'm doing. Screw you. I'm gonna—you know—this is what I'm gonna do." No, he was like, "Okay, well, what you really want is this, and let me see if I can do that." And so he was so cool to work with. My problem with Steve was that—that that Steve was, you know, such a a a, a weird, you know, eccentric kind of guy. I had problems getting work from him. Uh, he was really the only writer that was ever late. Um, really for me. And I mean, some of the others, you know, you had the occasional deadline issues and, and that kind of thing. But for the most part, um, you know, all the guys that, that I worked with, you know, submitted all the writers that I worked with, submitted their work on time. Now, but but did, not Steve Gerber.
0: <laughs> not Steve Gerber. Did,
1: <laughs> but he was brilliant.
0: Did you miss the writing part when you took over the editing part? I mean, because you're a creator. I mean, did, did, was it, and then you become a manager. And so you're yes. not writing to the level or the time. that Very you, much so. Did it and cost,
1: in fact.
0: I was going to say, did it cause frustration?
1: It did. Uh, and in fact, part of my agreement with Malibu. Uh, which which grew more frustrating the the longer time went on is part of my agreement with Malibu is that okay well look what I want to you know I, I I want to come out there and edit because I think I will be good at it and and you know I really you know if you had asked me before I became an editor Roland, and what i do is one of your childhood aspirations or dreams to goals to be an editor I would have said no I want to be a writer um you know I, I mean I, I guess this is probably Certainly debatable by by anybody, but I actually discovered that I was a pretty good editor. Um, but it was wasn't something that I said I want to be an editor. This is this was a goal of mine, right? It just it was kind of survival, really. Um, and and part of what I had talked about with Malibu was like, okay, well if I come on staff, will this give me the opportunity to continue writing? They said, yes. Your 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 primary function is going to be you know editor. But if you're there, yes, you're going to have more opportunities to write for us than you would if you were a freelancer. And that didn't happen. Now I wrote some stuff while I was there, certainly, uh, but one of my growing frustrations while I was out there is like, look, you know I, you know I'm not getting these opportunities to write. you know we've been six months or eight months and I'm not written a single comic and and you know you guys said that there would be these opportunities and and so they were always trying trying to figure out how to get me in and there are several projects that were on the boards that didn't happen um, you know um, for one reason or another um, so yes there there was certainly that frustration um, from the from the writer point of view
0: now were you when you did your novel when you decided to do it after the comic book you know, crash, if you will. Uh, Mm -hmm. When did you decide to go back into comics? When did that happen?
1: That was several years later. Um, I actually, so when the comic book industry crashed, you know, the late nineties, 96, 97, 98, thereabouts, you know, practically died. Um, That's when I, after, after Marvel came in and fired everybody, uh, I went on to do independent comics for a couple of years. And I did that until about 2000. And that's when the industry was just in such a terrible shape. I, I, you know, I was losing money hand over fist. Comic companies had gone, you know, out of business, and and all, the, you know, Marvel had gone bankrupt, and and all kinds of stuff. So I just, I just quit. And I actually quit writing. I was, I hadn't even considered, you know, really writing novels at the time. I just quit writing. Um, and it wasn't until I guess about 2003 or four or something like that. So I, I went for three, four years without doing any writing. Um, I I went and worked for an advertising agency. Well, actually, yeah, I went and worked for an advertising agency for about a year, and then I decided to go back to graduate school and teach, and so I went to uh, to graduate school, earned a master's degree, and started teaching, and once I got to teaching, I got back on the college campus. And you know, if you spend any time around college campuses, they, they just have um, a creative energy about them. There's just something about—I don't know whether it's because there's so many young people walking around. I don't know, but there's just some energetic, creative atmosphere in a college. And so I started writing again. And I wasn't going to do comics because, you know, I, I'd already been out a couple of years, and the the few Marvel and DC comics that I'd flipped through looked like crap to me, and I was like, yeah, I know, I don't, blah blah blah, terrible, 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 uh, and they were still in a bad way, uh, and no one who I knew who was still reading comics liked them, <laughs> they were buying them out of sheer habit, um, and so I'm like, well, you know, I, I toyed with a novel. Let me let me go back to that. Let me let me. Let me write a novel, and so that's what I spent. You know, I wrote for newspapers as well during this time. Uh, so I had, you know, there's there's uh, I have a whole host of newspaper article articles that I wrote, and that was that was fun. That was an enjoyment. It was a, a practice for me. I had to really learn to make my writing concise, um, you know, because you have a very limited space in a newspaper. Um, and it wasn't until about two thousand and nine, two thousand eight, I was doing research for my uh, English comp class. I was teaching uh, English comp, and Huckleberry Finn was one of the novels. I had two novels in my class in the course of the semester. It was primarily writing, you know, uh, English comp as a writing class. But you had two novels that you discussed throughout the course at this college. And so Huckleberry Fan was one of the novels. And, and I had gotten to a point where I, I felt, you know, the internet was still fairly new uh, at the time, and we were getting more and more stuff. And I'm like, okay, I, I was feeling like. My students weren't reading the book; they were going online and reading the Cliff Notes versions, right? Which I think were called (laughs) Spark Notes at the time. And so, you know, it was one of these things. I I need to figure out how to, you know, what questions I can ask them that they can't find on Cliff Notes, because I wanted them reading the books. I didn't want them reading Cliff Notes. And so I was searching, uh, you know, just searching to find out what was there. And I stumbled across. a company looking for someone to do a, a graphic novel adaptation of Huckleberry Finn. And I'm like, you know, and Huckleberry Finn is one of my all-time favorite novels. I just put that out to to, to begin with. One of my all-time favorite novels. And so I looked at it and I'm like, you know, I could do this. Do I want to do this? I haven't done comics in so long. I, I quit comics. I could do this. And so I just sent them an email. Listen, this has got to be one of the most unprofessional emails I've ever sent in a professional capacity because, you know, I had I know that it was full of attitude, but it was it, essentially I, my email said this, Yeah, I'm rolling. I teach uh, I teach uh, you know uh, English comp. Uh, I worked in you know, I worked in comics for about ten years. Uh, I could do this. <laughs> you know wow. it was it, it was, yeah, it was crappy, you know they sent me an email back almost immediately yes we'd love to have you do this when can you get started and and i'm like holy crap that was easy you know and so so you know they gave me all the instructions and parameters and all that kind of stuff and so i did i set about and, and wrote it at the the graphic novel adaptation of Huckleberry Finn, which you can find with me at, today at any at any, and you'll be able to find it this weekend at we haven't gone there yet. But we can <laughs> you can find it this weekend at uh, at Lake uh, Collect, uh, Lake Collecticon in Mount Dora, uh, which I will be. I will have it there with me. Um, but anyway, so you know that took a, a couple of months to do because it was a, you know graphic novel adaptation, and and when I was done, I'm like, okay. That was fun. I remember that, yes, I used to have fun with comics. And so I sent them an email. I said, hey, you know, you guys, you got anything else? And they said, yes, here's the list. And Wizard of Oz was on, was on the list. And so I did a graphic novel adaptation of Wizard of Oz. And that was fun too. And then the person who was in charge said, uh, we really like the way that you're doing these. Would you? Be an editor for us, and I'm like, well, let's talk about that. And so I ended up being a consultant. And I, and, and, and truth of the matter is, I, uh, I don't know what you'd call it in comics. Um, it wasn't a ghostwriter, but I repaired. They had some. They had bought some scripts because they didn't know what they were doing, right? And I think this was what happened when they saw my scripts. They realized, okay, this guy does know what he's doing. And they had bought scripts. Patrick, dude, you just – you would look at him, and you're going, what the heck is this? And so for the next eight months, I, I repaired scripts that they had purchased, um, and in the process, they also hired Howard Mackey, who is also a former Marvel Comics editor. And so the last couple of months of our time with uh, with uh, Campfire, we built an editorial a guideline sheet for them to help them figure out how to do this stuff. right? This was an Indian company, I should say, if I didn't say it already. Uh, and so they were completely new to it, didn't know what they were doing, didn't have anybody that had any experience whatsoever with comics. They just knew that they had some money that they wanted to invest, and they wanted to fight uh, illiteracy in in, in India. Uh, it apparently, it's it's a big problem. Um, so you can actually find copies of My Wizard of Oz and Huckleberry Finn in Hindi, in Hindi, I started to say in Hindi. In Hindi. Now, I have never held a copy in my hands, but I've seen pictures of them online from the the publisher posting them of of my comics in Hindi. Um, after the, the the weird thing is, after they got the uh, the the editorial guidelines from uh, that Howard and I put together, they fired us. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, so um, you
0: replaced but, yourselves, both of you did. Yeah,
1: I did. That's exactly right. So th- the funny thing is, though, um, after all of that happened, you know, by by the time that happened, that was around 2010 ish, something like that, and it was like, you know what? This was a lot of fun. I, I had fun doing this. You know, I I, I think I'll look into comics again. And so well, I wasn't in a hurry, but it was the kind of thing I, start, I dusted off. Let me see what, uh, let me see what else I can do. Um, digital had come around at that point in time. It, it wasn't huge as big as it is today, still not huge, but it wasn't as big as it is today. So I started saying, you know, look, I've got these older work. Why can't I take some of my older works and scan them and make them available, you know digitally? And, and maybe that could be a, a source of trickling a trickling source of, of income for me. And of course, in 2011, I got the job at um, at Full Sail here to be able to teach creative writing because creative writing is really what I wanted to teach. I enjoyed composition. Don't don't get me wrong. I enjoyed teaching English comp, but I really wanted to teach creative writing. And so when when the opportunity came to you know to join the creative writing department here at Full Sail, I'm like, okay, yes, I'm I'm coming. And you know, so that's kind of how how I kind of got back in. And the first after. After Wizard of Oz, the first few things I tackled were: let me see how I can take some of my, you know, some of my older works, and scan them and get them reprinted. I'm even still, and you've seen uh, at the other shows, you saw the Cray um, graphic novel I did and the Demons Tales graphic yes. novel I did, um, and those were. 2014, I think. So, you know, it took me a couple of years to get those. I'm still working on getting these things colored, um, but this just, th- this a long process. You know, you think *Demons' Tales* uh, is 96 pages, *Cray* is 120, blah, blah, blah pages. <laughs> uh, I'd have to count it up. Um, so, it's just, you know, it's a time thing. It's just, it's just taking time. But I am working on getting them colored. Um, and so then, you know, I also started working on the new stuff like tiny and, and, um, that kind of thing. So
0: how's tiny going for you?
1: Tiny's doing really well. We're, we're, um, we're almost finished shipping out the rewards. Uh, the bulk of them went out, uh, last week and I'm starting to get some, some, um, uh, you know emails and pictures of, of folks having received their awards rewards and saying they're happy with them. Uh, we've probably got and I'm just guessing here, probably 20 more to send out, 25, something like that. These are the ones that needed this, some sketches that Deanna's doing and, and and so I'm waiting on those from her. Uh, I did get an email from her uh, late last night that says she's done with them, so I just got to get them from her and then package those up and and then it'll be done. So I'm anticipating Certainly, by this time next week, I'll be able to tell you all the rewards have been shipped and you know we're gonna close that chapter. So uh, it's going over really well. I, I, I've uh, y- you know everyone who's uh, gotten it and emailed me, obviously, I know that that usually the ones who really like it are the ones who reach out to you, but they've all said they liked it. I haven't seen yet to see anyone say, yeah, you know, I didn't like this very much or yeah, this is just more of, you know, more of the same. So, I mean, you know, it's going to happen when you work in, in in any kind of entertainment, but so far the feedback to me has been really really good, so it's really exciting. And it still does really well at the shows when we do. So, I'm anticipating, you know, uh, moving quite a bit of them uh, at Mount Dora this this Saturday.
0: Well, you're moving right where I wanted to go. Is what is Roland bringing with him? For you. Yeah, yeah. What is Roland bringing with him besides himself to Lake Collecticon in Mount Dora, Florida, this Saturday?
1: Well, I am bringing with me all kinds of cool comic books. Uh, you can get tiny. You can get issues number one and issue number two now um, from me. Um, I will be there, and autographs, of course, are free all day long. Um, that's my 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 newest. Uh, latest hot off the presses kind of thing. But I'll also have um, – I just mentioned the Cray uh, trade paper, the tra- Cray graphic novel, the uh, Demon's Tales graphic novel, which has art by Paul Pelletier who uh, – we were just talking about this DC stuff. DC uh, Paul has been doing um, Cyborg here uh, for the the DC Rebirth. Uh, before that, he was doing – he did a long run on Aquaman, so, so comic book fans will know who he is. Uh, Paul did the artwork for Demon's Tales. I'm actually talking to him about doing a volume two, so I'm really excited about that. Um, I'll also have uh, what else will I have? I'll have I'll have a copy of my, my one and only novel thus far. Oh, I'll have Huckleberry Finn. I'll have uh, Wizard of Oz. I'll have a copy. Uh, I have copies of the remaining, which is a, a, an adaptation of a horror movie I did uh, in 2014, 15. When did I do that? Um, must have been 2004. I think it came out in October of 2014, so almost two years ago now. Um, I'll have a smattering of uh, other uh, back issues as well. Um, most people want the trade; they want the, the graphic novels. And I don't, don't move a whole lot of those back issues, so I'm actually probably going to stop carrying those eventually. Um, but I'll, I'll have those with me at uh, at Mount Dora. So,
0: what what's the name of your your novel. And what's it about? You
1: It is Yeah, it's um yeah, it, it, the name of my novel is called Buying Time. Uh you it's available on Amazon, so for those uh who are, are curious or interested, you can get it uh you can get the print copy on Amazon and you can get it digitally so you can read it on your Kindle reader. Uh, or you know, you can come get a copy from me at Mount Dora. Um it's about um it's about a t- you know, it's here's the funny thing. There's it's not a romance book, okay? But there's more romance in this book than I had ever intended. Uh, basically, the story is about a man who loses his wife, and then he's approached by a time traveling time salesman to redo a part of his life. And obviously, you know, the guy lost his wife, so he wants to get he wants to get her back. So the story is kind of uh, his story and the story of the guy who um, who accidentally. Uh, killed his wife. Um, it was an accident, drunk driver kind of thing. It's their story, two different approaches of the idea of redoing a part of your life, right? Um, there's the the two guys kind of have the debate of, well, you know, is this, you know, if we can do it, should you do it? Just because you can change time. Uh, should you, right? And number one, they're not even sure you can change time, so I should I should say that that right off the top of the the, the bat, there they're not even convinced they can change time. But the the are the, the debate kind of is well, if you can change it, should you? You know, what are you saying about uh, about the makers? What are you saying about uh, the, the God made a mistake the first time around, or are you saying that that fate has no um, plays no part in this? Are you, are you saying that things are destined to happen? What are you saying? You know, well, if if you were to change this thing, what would happen? Um, and so it it comes, it takes the approach of two completely different guys, and part of the romance comes uh, uh, about it. Obviously, he comes in from the guy who who lost his wife, and it it sort of becomes, you know, his pining for his wife and realizing, you know, how important she was to him and in, in his his life. Um, so so it's not, you know, it's kind of been. People have kind of called it, uh, you know, science fiction with a smattering of ro- uh, romance. It's not hard science fiction at all. So people are saying, "Oh, I want to." And I love science fiction, and, and I, you know, I do write science fiction, but this one is not. Does, uh, does it a hard fall?
0: Science does it fall under fantasy?
1: Um, it probably more uh, more under magical realism than okay. than fantasy. Um, I, I tend to call it a contemporary a contemporary novel. With a smattering of romance and a smattering, a smidgen of, of uh, science fiction.
0: Did you have a loss in your life to write
1: this? Um, no, I didn't. But I, I think that, um, I, you know, I had a, a in 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 2000, I experienced a big, you know, a personal change. Okay. Uh, a big life change, and I think that I just uh, I began to look at life in a different way. And I, and I tell my wife, I said, you know, this is kind of like my love letter to you. Um, and because it, it, it is, it is very much, the man is very much in love with his wife, but she's gone. And so he has to really come to terms with that. My wife is still here, thankfully. Um, but it was one of these things that I just, you know, for me as a person, I realized how important some of these things were in my life that I, that I hadn't, you know, that I'd kind of taken for granted before. Um, I don't talk about this a whole lot, and I probably shouldn't since you're recording, but uh, oh, really? the, 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 yeah, the wife and I had a a, a rough patch. Um, you know we've been married for twenty six years now and and we had a rough patch around in 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 that that period of time. and um, you know I, I, I personally it was all me i I took a lot of stuff for granted, you know did did things that you know probably ought not do and and uh, so this is probably my own reflection okay. of that.
0: okay, I was just kind of curious, you know what uh, motivated. <laughs> what sparked you if you will to uh, to write that? And yeah, well,
1: you know, I, I love time travel, so I love the the idea of that. And you know, it's one of these things, you know, you talk to people and my my sales pitch of the book is usually is usually this. If you had the opportunity to redo a part of your life, you know, that mistake you made in high school, the the time that you almost asked the the, the high school cheerleader out but you didn't. Or, you know, when you drop that pass in the end zone that would have won the football game, would you go back and redo that part of your life?
0: Ooh. Good question. <laughs> you can talk yeah. to you can talk to Roland about that at his table.
1: Yeah, and this is the this is the question that this book explores.
0: Okay. Now what part of time would you go back if it wasn't your personal life? If you had that access to that time travel capability? Where would you go? This, or would you go oh. forward? Or would you go forward? No,
1: I would I would go I would certainly go into the past. I, I I am a history nut. I would go back to the Civil War era. Wow. Um. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's just something about that that uh, I would love to be. I would love to be there to see some of the stuff and um, that we can only read about now. And, and you know, this was a, a a day before video. Uh. Obviously, you know, photography was in its infancy then, yes. and and we we have you know, what the daguerreotypes and the types. Yes. we've got, we've got images that we can see, but, um, uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it, it was, that's, that's where I would go.
0: Okay. Well, we'll ponder that one some other time with more time travel questions with you in the <laughs> next episode. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons to stop by your table is for you to share a story. I don't want it on this episode, we've had it on a previous one, but share your story of your encounter with Chekhov, and you can find out more <laughs> about Chekhov, yes, the original yeah. Chekhov on Star Trek, and Roland Mann's history together, it's a, yep. it's a special story, so if you love Star Trek, the original series, you will want to find out about Chekhov and Roland Mann, and one of them doesn't like the other one, we're not going to reveal who, <laughs> So, so
1: we have to put in perspective. Just a little, a little additional tease here is that I was—he wrote a comic, and I was his editor. So
0: <laughs> you were Chekhov's that, Captain Kirk.
1: <laughs> that, so that's it. That we'll 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 dangle that out there. For, okay. Yes, uh, I'll be happy to tell that story if uh, if you stop by and see me at uh, at my table at Mount Dora. And
0: if somebody is an aspiring writer and they have you know some work, will you look at it? Like artists look at uh, drawings, will you look at their writing?
1: Um yes yes and no the is my answer. Uh, obviously I, I don't have time to someone says, here's my you know 90 page graphic novel. I don't have time to read that. I, I just don't. What I'll do is I'll look at like uh, a limited number of script pages okay uh, generally so they can so I you know they can ask me, oh, what about my format right? I don't need to read 90 pages to tell you about your format I, I can I can look at you know three to five pages. And tell you, oh, here are the kind of things that you you need to work on for your format. Uh, you know, I will, I will read um I will read a synopsis. You know, if you've got a synopsis of your graphic novel that's about a page long, uh, and give you some feedback on what I think you might need to do or some of the things that I think you might need to focus on. That's excuse me. That's fairly easy for me to do. You know, I can read a summary. And, and and say you know here's here's where I think you need to, to do with your protagonist or here's where you need to up some conflict or or that kind of thing that's not a problem at all and really when it boils down to it, it it's all about the story comic books um, formatting is very malleable so there's no one not it's not like film there's not like one way to do it um, you know here's the other thing since since you brought this up. Uh, Any aspiring uh, writers who who, – and artists can stop by as well. But any aspiring aspiring writers that want to stop by and talk to me – um, can talk to me and tell me that they would like some scripts, and I am happy to share all the scripts that I have. I have uh, with permission from the writers, with the exception of a couple, and the, those are because the writers are no longer with us, and so I can't get permission. But you know, uh, so but but all of the others I have from permission from the writers, and so I'm happy to share them with uh, any aspiring writers to say, look, this is what this is what comic scripts look like.
0: All right, stop by, see Roland, Mount Dora, Florida, this Saturday, October 1st, what I consider and Kimmy considers the best comic book toy show in Florida for the month of October. And you're going to be there, Roland man, with George yep. Perez. That's right. And let's see, John Pinto artist. Oh. also, oh, let's see, Humphrey Ching artist, and Nathan Zerti. And Chris King, just to name a few, and Hollywood will be there with Roland, and that is Lana Wood will be there as well.
1: And can't forget my 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 good buddies. Uh,
0: oh, oh Barry, Barry, Barry Gregory, yep.
1: Barry Gregory, and G- and Jenny. I believe Jenny Gregory is also going to be there with their with their comics. So
0: excellent. And yeah, and, and Barry will talk about comic books. He'll also talk about print art with you too, if you'd like to talk to him about that. He loves. <laughs> yes. You know, you know, you you need to do a favor for me, Roland. You know, I, yeah. I, if you could get him to come on the show, I would deeply appreciate it. I think he's a little shy with me and, you know, I'd love to have him talk about print stuff with me and, and, and posters and those kind of things.
1: I will uh, I will once once we're done here I will hook you up um <laughs> because yeah I think I think really it's just a matter of uh, getting him to commit to a time and then I don't think he's going to have any problem at all talking with you.
0: All right. I'd love to talk <laughs> to him and and get his perspective on a certain thing because we've had somebody else on the show Who has a total different point of view. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. And I look forward to... He would be good. He would be good to talk about that as well.
0: And I look forward to having you on the show in the near future with somebody else who wants to talk with you about uh, comic books. And I just think that would be fun. And hopefully we can arrange that in Mount Dora and set up a time.
1: Absolutely. You know that uh, I am am yours to command, sir.
0: Oh, no. You're a brother from another mother. I don't command (laughs) you at all. You're my older brother. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) You're my much older brother.
1: Well, watch that older stuff, man. I
0: kind of like that. Well, thank you for being on the show, Roland. Look forward to seeing you on Saturday.
1: All right, absolutely.
0: And thank you to Roland Mann for being on the Riley and Kimmy show.
1: Thank you, Roland.
0: Now, please tell your nerd friends, your geek friends, your cosplay friends, your collecting friends about this big event. That is Lake Collecticon you heard Roland and I talk about. That's happening this Saturday in Mount Dora, Florida.
1: Come out, come out,
0: wherever you are. That's right, come out wherever you are. There's a chance to see some celebrity guests like Lana Wood. That's an actress from a James Bond movie. She was a Bond girl. There's also legend, legendary artist. George Perez Chad Thomas artist known for his teenage mutant Ninja Turtles work also Rob Gilre there from uh, let's see from uh, Chu fame and let's see artist Chris King will be there with his giant paintings also Humphrey Ching on hand with beautiful Batman and other DC and eh, Marvel work as well and let's see Nathan Zerdi and John Pinto just to name a few right Kimmy mm-hmm there's a cosplay contest going on there's a uh, different divisions there's an adult category kids category and That's all happening, and a preview at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, a parade, I'm serious, a cosplay parade at 2.30, and then there's an auction and raffle going on, Stan Lee, Marvel autograph, George Perez sketch item, also Jason Feebock, Batman poster, Adam West, Batman autograph, and much more. You will not want to miss out this event, please get there ahead of time, I'm stressing this, have no idea what the lines might be like because of George Perez, and the doors open up at ten o'clock, goes until four o'clock. this fun nerd event. This is the sixth one. You don't have to worry about a startup convention at all. This is a this is one that's been proven. They know what they're doing. It's the sixth one that's happened. And that's one of the concerns sometimes with conventions when they pop up. Is, you know, you have no idea what you're getting when you pay for your mission ticket. And you don't have to worry about this at all. There's a lot of vendors on hand. Plenty of collectibles will be there. If you're looking to fill that comic book collection, be sure to stop by Pop Culture Playground. Tom Rop will be able to help you out. That is this Saturday. Also, the people who sing our jingle, the ones who you heard a cover version of, uh, you know, uh, Phantasmagoria opened this episode with. Outdated Slang is there. They will have CDs on hand. These are limited edition CDs. And Katie Roberts, the lead singer, and Terry Moore, the founding member, will be there signing autographs and also available for pictures. And by the way, Terry is a sports memorabilia enthusiast. He will have some items available like baseballs and things like that and cards and all kinds of stuff. Also looking at your collection, too. By the way, they they will be looking at collections of other individuals, too, like comic books and also other items you might have that are collectible so be sure to bring them with you this is a buying selling trading kind of convention it's happening this saturday are you all ready for this kimmy oh i can't wait now is there any one item you're looking for because we we are stating this and we're serious in our opinion this is the best the best comic book toy collectible show for the month of october in florida is there something you're looking for
1: Well, I don't know. I
0: I guess I'll know when I see it. I mean, last year I found, uh, when I wasn't looking for it, I found some Lady and the Tramp comics. Oh, great. Um, And I think they have posters, too. So you never know what you're going to find. Excellent. And one of the things I am very interested in, and I will add to my reading, you know, to my library, is the novel that Roland Mann. Mentioned that he had written, that he has available. So I I think that's going to the library. Mm. And get my signed copy from Roland. Very good. So stop by, meet my brother from another mother. That's Roland Mann. And still, uh, once again, a very big thank you to him for being part of the Riley and Kimmy show. Join us on the next episode, number 1008. We will have something else, a little special thing about Lake Collecticon. Also has some nerd other fun that's not about Lake Collecticon. Join us for that. That's episode 1008. We have archive podcasts, also links to our social media available. Please follow us, like us, friend us. If you do, we friend, follow, and like you back. reason is you can stay in tune to what's going on convention-wise and places we're at. Who knows what we might be posting about Lake Collecticon this weekend. You want to be in the know. And where can you find those links to those uh, archived episodes and those social media links, Kimmy?
1: RileyandKimmy.com
0: Find archived podcasts of the Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com